my fellow Americans and all those listening overseas, welcome back to Visiting the Presidents. I am your host, Joe Fakash, and today we will be visiting our 10th president and known as the accidental president, our first vice president who succeeded into the office, John Tyler. John happens to be born just down the road of his running mate, William Henry Harrison, outside of Charles City, Virginia, at another plantation, this time called Greenway, maybe about five miles away from William Henry. And as I said in episode nine last week, you know, surely you could imagine the two of them being close friends if they grew up at the same age, at the same location. But in fact, William Henry would have been 17 years older than John Tyler. Both are going to have these revolutionary figures as their parents. Uh, Both of their fathers are governors and actually will succeed one another. And in the case of John Tyler, he is going to be the namesake son. He happens to be the sixth of eight children, with five of them being girls, but he will be named John Jr. for his father. We know that the Tylers were one of what was called the first families of Virginia, and Henry had come to Williamsburg in 1653 when John Tyler Sr. is a young boy. He goes to the College of William and Mary, where he is a friend and happens to be roommate of Thomas Jefferson. Yes, that Thomas Jefferson. And they both get to know Patrick Henry pretty well, and then would have, of course, associated with some of the other revolutionary figures in Williamsburg at that kind of fateful moment. John Tyler Sr. is going to be another revolutionary figure. He is going to Uh, actually come down against the original constitution because he really is in favor of states' rights. And when the Bill of Rights is proposed, then he kind of softens his views on the document. But this will inform John Tyler Jr.'s later kind of reticence in terms of trying to find a party. Um, In 1841, when he's thrust into the presidency, he's abandoned by the Whig Party, kind of despised by the Democratic Party. And a lot of that stems from this earlier kind of um, debate between his family about how much the Democratic Party was in favor of states' rights. And then under Andrew Jackson, how much of that became about establishing the kind of federalist power. And uh, they would have been kind of without a party at that moment. Now, when he is seven years old, his mother, Mary, will die. We don't know too much about Mary other than the story, likely apocryphal, that when little John Jr. was in his crib, she saw him reaching out and believed he was reaching for the moon, and she supposedly said, he's going to be the president someday. He, uh, you know, is reaching for the stars already. Now, (laughs) she probably would have been shocked at how he came into the office. And certainly later, John Tyler, um, you know, he certainly was not trending in that direction. But that's the story. And they kind of stuck to it. Now, like I said, she dies when John is just seven years old. And that really does force John Sr. into this bind where he is a budding politician and somebody who was seen as a real kind of light in colonial Virginia into revolutionary era Virginia. And now suddenly he is going to have to be both father and mother. 
And according to stories, he does become both to the family and um, really kind of softens in the way he treats his children, playing the fiddle for them and really taking on a kind of nurturing role that would have been very out of step with a lot of our other revolutionary parents. He will serve as governor of Virginia from 1809 to 1811 and then will be named to the circuit court as a judge before he dies in 1813, but certainly gives John Tyler Jr. this last name that is going to serve him very well when he's still trying to figure out his own kind of political views. He's going to have a brother who also serves in the House of Delegates. And if that sounds like a theme from some of these early Virginian presidents, it's because it is. And um, we do know that he is then related to the Truman family um, and will have been a great, great, great uncle of future President Harry S. Truman. One of the stories we know about John Tyler as a young boy is, of course, how kind of caught up like Benjamin Harrison V, um, John Tyler Sr. would have been in the revolution. And so passing some of those stories on, you kind of imagine what it would have been like to be a little boy and hearing about this new country that you're starting and that your father is a part of it, part of the action. And when he's talking about George Washington and Thomas Jefferson, that these are your dad's friends, <laughs> it would have been a really interesting time. Now, John Tyler, unlike William Henry Harrison, is going to feel very dignified and well-bred and acts a little snooty about it. He is very outgoing around people of his same class, and I'm sure we all know people like that. When he's around working-class people, John Tyler can be unresponsive and aloof with a, quote, ingrained shyness and discomfort around people with dirt under their fingernails. Uh, so, mm, I mean, that is completely in line with what it would have been to be a planter class back during this period when there really would have been a distance between that type of living and those around you who just did not have it. And one of the main reasons you get somebody like an Andrew Jackson and even a Martin Van Buren and later presidents who will shake up the system and really kind of shine a spotlight on this class consciousness. I'm sure you don't think of John Tyler as being a fancy pants, but clearly he had uh, out of the first 10 presidents, he is probably the most class conscious of all of them. Um, and he just has no interest in trying to relate to people who are not of his class. He loves to play instruments, different instruments, and is going to really get into hunting, uh, especially fox hunting. That's going to be his favorite. He is also a very kind of sickly man, and you got to imagine that just would have been a thing in this area where you would have been um, you know, around all sorts of different diseases. It would have been very humid. It sounds a lot like James Madison, if you remember. And the book that I was reading made mention that he was prone to diarrhea, which, again, considering the water would have been certainly a thing. He's also born after the revolution, like our friend Martin Van Buren in episode eight. And so after the war, there's going to be an uptick in some of these contagious diseases, mainly because of how they handled the dead 
after the during and after the war. Um, and so that's going to also be kind of a component of this as well. Now, John was an Episcopalian, but he, like Thomas Jefferson, is going to view, view himself much more as a deist. And he's going to think that God had loosed evil on the world so that we as uh, humans could appreciate the good in life. He's going to be very tolerant of all religions, and like William Henry Harrison, is going to be critical of any minister who tries to inject political matters into his sermons. Now, like William Henry Harrison, John Tyler would have had a privileged education, uh, being tutored as a young man of means. Um, but we do know that when he was 11, he was going to participate in a revolt against their teacher, William McMurdo, who he is going to uh, say is mistreating or abusing the young boys. And John and his friends are going to take Mr. McMurdo and bound him and lock him in the schoolhouse. And when McMurdo gets free, he goes right to Greenway to John Sr., who would have been a judge in the area at this time. This is right before he becomes governor and says, like, your son helped lead this revolt, and here's all the things that he did to me, and expects John Sr. to come down hard on the future president. And instead, John Sr., Virginian to his core, is going to use the phrase Sic Semper Tyrannus, (laughs) thus always to tyrants, which now is, of course, the Virginia state motto, and what John Wilkes Booth uh, yelled after shooting Abraham Lincoln. Uh, And that is going to really give you insight into what John Sr. was like, that he would have seen his son as a revolutionary, not unlike what John Sr. would have been against the British. And so McMurdo does not get the conclusion that he had hoped for. At 12, John is going to go to a preparatory school at the College of William and Mary and then matriculate into the college where he graduates in 1807. He's going to especially be a fan of English literature, history, good for him, and economics, where he is going to really see the book by Adam Smith, The Wealth of Nations, as his kind of Bible. And after he graduates, he's wanting to go into law school, where he's going to study under his father and then his cousin, Samuel Tyler, Finally, he is going to end up under Edmund Randolph, the first attorney general, uh, and that is going to be his law preparation. So one of the best educations by far uh, that we'll see. He's going to be admitted to the Virginia Bar in 1809 and then gets elected to the House of Delegates in 1811 through 16 as a Jeffersonian Republican. So he's still hewing close to his father's views. And he's going to go up against these senators who had been appointed by the legislature and voted for the Bank of the United States. So very much in opposition of any uh, kind of expansion of what they had seen as federalist intrusion. Um, So states' rights to the core. He's going to help, um, you know, have a very brief military experience during the War of 1812, mainly in defense of Richmond. And as a payment for his service, he gets land in what is today Sioux City, Iowa, which was, you know, 
Thanks. <laughs> that would have been cool. Um, and then is elected to the House of Representatives, the United States House of Representatives in 1816, where he's going to represent the city of Richmond. And there is going to be very frustrated by this now what he views as kind of a seizure of states' rights where they're seeing those rights being kind of trampled. And so he is going to oppose the National Bank, oppose tariffs, and oppose these improvements that are being suggested by first James Madison and then James Monroe that uh, John Tyler would have seen as really a betrayal of what they had seen as states' rights and that he would have kind of inherited from his father. Eventually, he's going to resign his seat and return to the House of Delegates in Virginia, wanting to focus much more on Virginia politics, and then is elected as governor of Virginia in 1825. Now, what we'll see when we visit him again in the episode in season two is going to be this real um, kind of crisis for John Tyler, where as Andrew Jackson becomes president, he is, of course, on his surface, somebody who supports states' rights, but then as president is also going to be about the expansion of the executive. And what John Tyler is going to be kind of forced into is this conundrum where he does not want the president to have that much power, but at the same time really cannot get down with the opponent party, the Whigs. And so by the time we see him in 1836, he's going to really have this quandary on his hands in terms of how much do you go in with these Democrats who you don't agree with? And how much do you go in with these Whigs who you also don't agree with? And that'll really give us insight into the man without a party when he becomes president in 1841. Now we'll look at what happens to the House John Tyler Sr. built this six-room, one-and-a-half-story plantation house in 1776, so 14 years before John Tyler was born. And he originally is going to call it Marley, M-A-R-L-I-E, until his sister is going to insist, no, it should be called Greenway, and then that name is going to stick. He is going to try to sell Greenway in 1805 so that he can be closer to his sons at the College of William and Mary. And we know that at the time, the notice that's going to be published about the real estate is going to list that it includes 500 acres. All of the rooms will be wainscoted, which I only in recent years learned was a thing, um, and also lists all of the buildings and um, slave uh, quarters that are on the property, as well as gardens. He added into the notice a section called, Why Would I Want to Sell This?, um, and he is going to mention, <laughs> quote, shedding the mortal coil. So already looking ahead to, you know, he's a widower and, you know, what do I have to hold on to this property for? Now, fortunately for the Tyler family, that sale will not go through and he will actually become the governor very soon thereafter. And at that home is then going to have this place where he can then play host and eventually will play host to President Thomas Jefferson um, from his own home state. Now, when he does die, John's brother Watt, W-A-T, is going to inherit the ho home, and John and his new wife, Letitia, uh, will decide that they don't really want to live in the house, and so they are going to keep it um, 
try to return it to the market. And it'll eventually be sold to first a William Douglas and then John Ming. But then John is going to have a kind of change of heart and say, you know, I kind of do want to live there. And so he buys the house back for $7,000 and will live in the house until 1829, uh, including while he's governor of Virginia, and then is going to sell it when his family starts to get larger. And there's a new property up the road called Sherwood Forest, which we'll be talking about in season two. Now, we don't know too much about what happens to the home between 1829 and 1932. Even today, the house is a privately owned property. It is still the same house, but you know, we don't have a lot of insight into what goes on there. Um, it's never been in kind of public hands by any, uh, at any course. And we know that Lyon Tyler, who would have been the son of John and then president of the College of William and Mary, will purchase the home for a piece of time, uh, along with another property at Monsacre. And, um, of course, down the road when they will literally own uh, Sherwood Forest as well. We know that a lumberman will buy the property from Lyon in 1833 and want to start taking the property apart uh, to sell for railroad ties. But the home is going to stay intact. And then there will be this huge auction in 1979 when a West German named Heinrich Harling from the Harling Fortune is going to buy the house on the very same day that Zachary Taylor's birthplace home at Montebello, which we'll talk about in episode 12, is going to be sold at auction on the very same day. So these two birthplaces were kind of under threat of being sold to the wrong hands. Now, like I said, the house is going to be uh, privately owned. And this is a theme that we'll also see down the road where there are going to be other presidential birthplaces that are still standing, but um, will be under private ownership. Most recently, George H.W.'s home in uh, Milton, Massachusetts is going to be a living, breathing house, but it is not open to the public. Being in private hands is going to make this a little bit tricky. You have to imagine that when a birthplace is not in public hands and it's somebody's actual life and not just that historical site, it does make it a little hard to commemorate. And this is something we'll see with other presidential sites that are not federally or formally commemorated. Making things especially tricky with John Tyler is the fact that, as we'll talk about in season three, he is going to be associated with the Confederacy. In his last years of his life, he's going to uh, really take up with the state's right cause and really focus on the Commonwealth of Virginia. And when his state secedes, John Tyler goes with them and is elected to the House of Representatives for the Confederacy and is trying to take the oath of office when he has his stroke and dies. And so the U.S. federal government does not recognize his gravesite for 60 years after he's dead. And the same kind of notion will also fall to his birthplace, right? It's a little odd to me because we see at this exact same time, you know, the real kind of mythos of the lost cause really starting to crop up among the groups that want to erect statues all over the South. And John Tyler never gets these, you know, huge tributes that um, we see for other men who would have taken up with the Commonwealth or, you know, the, the Confederacy's cause. 
We do know that in 1913, the group that had commemorated William Henry Harrison's birthplace, the Society of the Colonial Dames, great name, one that I can never get over, um, are going to want to erect a marker at his birthplace. And they give a kind of lurid speech, if I have to say, where they say they, quote, came to this sacred spot and placed here a memorial to commemorate the deeds and virtues of this truly great and good Virginian, one who climbed to the topmost round of the ladder of fame in America and who won every step of that ascent by his genius, his manly virtues, and his steadfast fidelity and devotion to truth, to principle, and to duty. Now, you know, I've read a lot about John Tyler. I happen to think that his actions after William Henry Harrison dies are really historic and kind of underestimated. It would have been really difficult to assume, no, I, I'm the president. And you know, today we kind of take it for granted that you would have uh, ascended to that office, but it was very unclear at that moment. And that's something we can discuss down the road. But I don't know that I've read anything that makes me think of John Tyler as a great man who's somebody who has this genius or particularly manly virtues from from anything that I've read. It's important to kind of keep in context that this would have been something that they really would have fixated on wanting to make him into a kind of great man. But, you know, John Tyler seems in every other way to be a very ordinary person. Being vice president was not considered this great position throughout all of the 1800s. And it isn't until John Tyler himself gets to ascend to the office that people start to look at it a little bit more seriously. But even still, you're going to have people who, you know, most of you have likely never heard of. And that speaks to how little was thought of the vice presidency. He wanted to be senator in 1836 and 1840. He did not want to be vice president. Nobody wanted to be vice president. So to make it sound like this was, you know, the ladder of success, he wouldn't have known that it was going to lead to that position. You know, ask Richard Johnson or Daniel Tompkins what being vice president meant. But again, does give you an idea into what in 1913, the Society of the Colonial Dames was trying to cook up about what that office would have meant. There is a marker outside of the birthplace home today that's going to read Greenway. This was the home of John Tyler, governor of Virginia, 1808 to 1811. His son, John Tyler, president of the United States, was born here March 29th, 1790. So just like with William Henry Harrison just down the road. The birthplace of the president is one of the, the second most or you know, down the list uh, important things that happen at that place. Instead, it's the governor father who gets the first credit. There are other markers in the area. Like we said before, Sherwood Forest is going to be located on the other side of Charles City from this birthplace. And then there's markers right outside of where William Henry Harrison's home is that are going to mention you know, how to get there, as well as signage that was going to point to uh, where Sherwood Forest and where President Tyler's home had been. And so those are available to you now. The one for President Tyler's home that had to be replaced had bullet holes in it. And again, kind of speaks to this murkiness about John Tyler and his status. 
Now, I, I do wonder how much of that has to do with the fact that he would have been our first vice president to ascend to the office as well. You know, he is going to get labeled as an accidental president. And so some of it does seem kind of like disrespect for the idea that he hadn't been elected in his own right. And so maybe some of that is there as well. But that is kind of for you to get to decide. Like I said before, the home is in private hands, but it is protected by the National Register of Historic Places since 1969, so there are no future alterations that can happen to the home without that approval. Occasionally, this sign does go missing, and I've read that in some of these sites that I go to for presidential birthplaces or other sites, that every now and then they have to replace the sign or the sign will be taken down. And so people will be driving on this road and not find the Greenway sign, but it has been there the two times that I've gone through. Now, both times that I went by this place, it was on route to going to uh, William Henry Harrison's birthplace, like I said, about five miles away. And on John Tyler Memorial Highway, you can find the Greenway Plantation. And again, you know, all you get is the sign that you can you know, take a photo from by the road. There's a kind of pullout on one side of the road where you can take a picture of the sign. And then you can look down this long driveway to this house that's kind of buttressed by these trees that overhang it. From the highway, it looks like a really nice house, and it's very well taken care of. You can see the kind of pediment uh, window and roof, and it does look like a plantation home, but that's all the closer you can get to John Tyler's birthplace. Now, what it tells us about the president is a little interesting. Like I said, you know, it is kind of difficult with John Tyler in that he has these kind of two marks going against him, this notion that he wasn't himself elected to the presidency and instead is going to ascend to it. And though today we don't think too much of that notion, you know, certainly it does seem to kind of been held against John Tyler, certainly in his lifetime, he felt like he had to defend it a few times. And then the fact that he does in his older years take up against the United States government. Now, in his mind, he would have felt himself very principled, right? That he was defending the Commonwealth, he was defending states' rights and the planter class. But the idea that uh, he goes through on this notion that other presidents really kind of backed away from and that we would find very critical today if any president, uh, former or current, said, oh, I'm going to, you know, take up with the secession cause, um, you know, that would be cause for alarm. And uh, John Tyler is going to lend some credibility to that secession cause when he literally takes up with an opposing force. And so, you know, that does make it tricky when it comes to kind of commemorating uh, where he was born. Now, the other part of it, of course, is that it's privately owned. And so you don't get to see any of the conditions of, of where he was actually born and, you know, put yourself in his framework. But knowing that area, after getting to visit the Berkeley Plantation, you can imagine the kind of wealth and the ability to be out of touch with the rest of the colony and the rest of the country and the rest of society. That is something that is imprinted on you when you go by Greenway Plantation. You know, John Tyler would have been born in 
wealth and would have had only the finer things, getting to go to the College of William and Mary at an early age, having a father that was the governor, and so certainly being a bit out of touch with the rest of the country. That sounds like John Tyler. (laughs) That sounds like something that is going to really kind of mark his presidency as well as his kind of ignominy in terms of being this first accidental president, this only president to take up with another country, and then one of the the few presidents whose birthplace lists him second. So that is something that we have to think about with John Tyler. Now, if you listen to the recent revision of the Martin Van Buren episode to episode eight, I talked about how one of the reasons I wanted to stop by is because I didn't take a photo with the marker on the highway. And the same thing happened with John Tyler. I'd gone through twice. I'd taken a photo of the Greenway marker, but I hadn't taken a photo of myself with it. And I know it's weird, but that's what I want to do, my little brand. Well, when I came back through in the summer of 2021, going from Sherwood Forest, where I got to visit John Tyler's home. I got to go inside and you'll hear all about that in season two. I was then on my way to Berkeley Plantation and I wanted to rectify this error and take a photo with the John Tyler birthplace marker. But to my great shock, they had revised the sign. It's a completely different sign. And so I did want to make note of that. I wasn't able to find when they erected a new sign, but it had to have been sometime between July of 2017 and then when I came back to visit in July of 2021. I'll read to you from the new marker. John Tyler, 10th President of the United States, was born just north of here at Greenway on 29 March 1790. The Frame Plantation House was built circa 1776 for his father, John Tyler, a noted jurist and governor of Virginia from 1808 to 1811, who was buried on the property. The future president grew up at Greenway and lived here again during the 1820s while serving in the Virginia House of Delegates as governor of Virginia and in the United States Senate. He and his wife, Letitia Christian, moved to Gloucester County at the end of the decade. In 1842, during his presidential term, Tyler bought Sherwood Forest about three miles east of here. So a lot more information on this sign. And I did take a photo showing the sign in juxtaposition to Greenway Plantation. So you'll want to check that out on the website. And I do now have a photo with the John Tyler birthplace marker. So that was something I wanted to check off the list. Now, next week, we are going to see another president from North Carolina. So we're still not out of the East Coast by any stretch, but we're going to go back to the rough and tumble of this kind of rural area in North Carolina with the birthplace of James Knox Polk in Pineville, North Carolina. Remember to be checking out the podcast website at visitingthepresidents.com, where you can find photographs of my trips, other images, and links to other readings and visitor information. For this episode, my sources were Doug Weed's The Raising of a President, William D. Gregorio's Complete Book of U.S. Presidents, and Louis Picone's Where the Presidents Were Born. I have added a PayPal link on the episode page on visitingthepresidents.com, as well as the episode page. Any monies received will be used for future trips, as well as the hosting fees for the website and for the podcast. Remember, you can also help support Visiting the Presidents by liking and subscribing on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, Pandora, or wherever you get this podcast, as well as 
being a fan of the social media sites, I am on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just search for Visiting the Presidents. And remember to be checking out the website at visitingthepresidents.com and subscribing there as well. Now let's get in our cars and go to visit the presidents. See ya.